I'm your host, Mehek Kondru. And I'm your host, Michael Wiafe. This is PolicyWise. In honor of May being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, today's episode will focus on the importance of both identity and representation and how two women have kept their heritage close to them as they progressed in their innovative careers. This episode and month is particularly important as we've seen a rise in hate crimes across the nation towards Asian Americans, an issue that's long existed in the United States, but has brought back in wake of COVID-19, political polarization, and outright bigotry. With us today, we have Jia Vang and Wenda Fong, some incredible guests who have broken barriers and are advocates for representation in the media. Jia Vang is an emerging leader in news broadcasting. Previously having worked in Arizona, Missouri, and Oregon, she's now the news anchor for CARE 11, based out of the Twin Cities of Minnesota, where she covers a wide variety of topics, including politics, weather, and sports. She's the first Hmong American anchor in the Twin Cities, providing representation for by far the largest metropolitan population of Hmong in the United States. Before that, she was an anchor in Fresno, just a little closer to those of us in California, and she graduated with her degree in journalism from Sacramento State University. We are so excited to have her here with us today. We also have with us Wanda Fong, who is an inspiring media trailblazer. She's produced and directed awards and talk shows, musical and reality specials, sitcoms, documentaries, and more. She's the first person of color and only woman to produce the Emmy Awards and launch productions all across the world. Wanda spearheaded diversity at Fox Broadcasting and was the first vice president of creative diversity development. She launched and oversaw American Idol in 2002 and moved on to supervise all reality series, including American Idol, So You Think You Could Dance, Hell's Kitchen, MasterChef, and many other shows that some of us grew up watching. She's the co-founder and chairperson emeritus of the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment, which is the largest, long-running, and most influential organization for Asian American Pacific Islanders in entertainment. Among so many other accomplishments, Leadership Community Service sees the vice chair of the California State University Board of Trustees and got her degree in Asian American Studies from the University of Southern California. I know that there's a lot more to both of your stories. So would you like to add anything else to your introduction and tell us maybe a little bit of how your identity interacts with you on a daily basis? Gio, would you like to start? Um, thank you so much for that introduction, Michael and Mahek. Uh, I think you did a really wonderful job. I mean, that's kind of the career in a nutshell um, and how my identity interacts with my daily life. I mean. I was just telling someone today, you know, the first thing I do when I wake up and walk out the door, especially in this country, is I wake up as a Hmong Asian woman. And so uh, that is an identity that I cannot strip from myself. So, uh, yeah, it's something that I I, uh, grapple with and tackle and as I move in the world every day. Thank you, Gia. And Wenda, the same for you. Thank you for both of you having us on policy-wise, I really appreciate it and this opportunity. As what Gia just said, it is who I am. And as you know, a person growing up in Sacramento, it was something that was always called upon, you know, when people would see me. They would actually even say, gosh, you speak English so well. Even though I'm a third generation American, my grandparents came from China over a hundred years ago. And so that type of situation actually um, fired my passion for diversity, inclusion, and equity. And because of that, that's how it uh, formed my community work and actually launched my career in the entertainment industry. So I wanted to get started with um, the first question we had for today, which was what does AAPI Heritage Month mean to you? 
and how do you think it might be particularly different this year? I guess I could go. Wenda, I also didn't know you're from Sacramento, so go Sac Town. Yay! Yay. And you went to Sac <laughs> State. That's fantastic. I, did, I, did. I know. That's wonderful. Um, I'm also very, very, if I hadn't said this already, so pleased to be on this panel with Wenda today. Thank you so much for all the work that you've done, Wenda. Um, so in terms of what API Heritage Month means to me this year, given all the anti-Asian hate that has happened, unfortunately, uh, that has given us visibility. And I think that that is not how I see API, but I do see it as also this moment of solidarity between the Asian communities. And I've not seen that in a long time. And I think uh, I'm really proud to see people in the API community coming together to support one another. And as we all know, the umbrella of AAPI is so vast. Uh, we have so many nuances within that umbrella. We're talking like East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians like I am. Uh, and so I think the experiences and the lives are so different in that under that umbrella. And I think that this year, I am just pleased to see the solidarity and I uh, am disheartened that it had to take a lot of these uh, violent acts towards our community to have that visibility. I agree completely with what Gia said. It really has been, for those of us in the AAPI community, a painful, devastating, heartbreaking past year with this surge, this incredible wave of anti-Asian violence, crimes, the, um, the hate against our community. But what has so inspired me and filled me with hope is the gathering of all of our AAPI communities, but also our allies that are standing with us in fighting against this Asian hate. And what I am so thankful for with the month of May being Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, that it's a time for celebration of our heritage, of our contributions to shine a light, a positive light. And so what I'm really hoping is that we are turning Stop Asian Hate into AAPI Joy for this month, that we can pivot to joy. Coming from a South Asian background myself, uh, it's been particularly difficult watching elders in the Asian community being um, subject to a lot of hatred because I know that um, amongst Asian cultures, there's such a strong emphasis on of gratitude towards our elders for the sacrifices that they made for us and all that they've done for us. And so um, for that it just makes it so much more difficult and so much harder to see this happening. And so I, I just like you, I hope that this month can also be a moment of joy and a moment of recognition for all the good that comes from our community. And kind of building off on that with Gia, your Hmong background being one of the many cultures that fall under this term of being Asian, um, how do you feel that that fits into the month as well? Um, well, I think, I mean, like I mentioned, I walk out and I'm Hmong and I'm also Asian. And I think that it's 
interesting because I've had conversations with people and people who are very close to me because I am such a proponent of, you know, being Hmong and my culture and I'm so proud of it. Um, I've, I've had conversations with people who say, wait, but you're not, I don't, I don't see you as Asian. I just see you as Hmong. And I have to explain to them that unfortunately living in this country, um, I am seen as Asian. Like if you don't know about our cultures and you don't know the different, you know, nuances within those the Asian umbrella, you, you're going to see me as Asian no matter what. And so while I appreciate, you know, the idea that I am so, um, I'm so deeply rooted in um, bringing my culture to light for other people to learn and understand. Um, I am also at the end of the day, an Asian person in this country. And that is something that was man made here in this country. And I think that uh, um, having to have those conversations right now um, have not only challenged me, but it's challenged other people to really think about uh, what it means to be Asian in this country. So for me, uh, as I had said, I'm a third generation Chinese American. Um, I studied Asian American studies when I was in college, but my, my real beginnings of being, um, I guess you could say an activist for the Asian American community started when I was in high school. And what I realized was that in order to have the power of all of our communities, we needed to unite all of our voices that rather than just being identified as Chinese or Japanese or Hmong or Vietnamese, Thai, you know, there are almost 50 uh, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian um, communities that make up being an AAPI and united that is how we have a strong voice. It is being united. And so that's why it's so important for me that we as the AAPI community, that we stand together. And that's how we can, we can have our powerful voice heard. I can't help but reflect on my own relationship with my identity and, and kind of how that's influenced uh, just the way that I go about my life. Um, this podcast was in part started when Demi and I had a lot of conversations last summer and we felt kind of powerless. Like, what do we do? Uh, there's protests all across the country and, and, uh, my community was under attack and, and there was so much going on. And so part of that was, well, as young people, part of all that we can do is talk about it and, and at least broadcast some of our conversations, um, with folks who are, who are making that change for their communities, uh, and for others. So uh, this question is, is directed a little bit towards Wenda and, um, I know that you produced an amazing PSA to play in movie theaters across the country recently. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and, and maybe what it means for you? Absolutely. And, and thank you for the opportunity for letting me to letting me to speak about it. Um, as I said, you know, this past year has been really devastating for the AAPI community. And fortunately, many of the organizations that I'm involved with have really stepped up and have done wonderful things. But I felt that I was not doing anything personally. And it was like, well, what could I do? And I thought, well, I'm a producer. I could produce a PSA. And it was an idea that I had um, more than four weeks ago. And I thought, well, May is coming up. 
I could produce a PSA for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And I called up one of my friends who's the head of governmental relations for the AMC theaters, which happens to be the largest movie chain in the United States. And so I called him up and I pitched him this idea. And he said, well, you know, Wendell, the AMC normally doesn't do this, but I just kept on pitching him and explaining to him the importance of having a positive, joyful, entertaining message, because I knew it was for his moviegoers, that um, this would be such an incredible opportunity to reach millions of people across the United States. Well, less than 24 hours later, he gave me the green light. And uh, with the, the uh, promise that if I could get an A-list director and top AAPI talent, um, that I could do it. I said, fantastic. And he said, but you have to deliver it in like two weeks. And it's like, oh no, how am I going to do that? But amazingly, um, I was able to get the fantastic, fabulous John M. Chu, who's the director of Crazy Rich Asians and soon to be in the Heights, who happens to be in pre-production for Wicked. But he was amazing. You know, even with his incredibly um, tight schedule. He carved a day out and I was able to get 21 AAPI talent to show up on a Saturday. Hi, I am Ken Jung. <laughs> I'm here to celebrate our community for Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And we shot our PSA and, and I'm really proud to say that um, all the production people that I asked they all said yes. If you don't know who we are, how are the neighbors? And it wasn't just AAPIs within the entertainment industry, but partners such as Panavision, uh, Cinelease, the Directors Guild, the Screen Actors Guild, all of these people stepped up and said, we want to help. Asian Pacific. Asian American. Asian Pacific. <laughs> Happy Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. So uh, we have this PSA that is playing um, through the month of May at all of the AMC theaters, which is more than 7,500 theaters across the United States. You're welcome. That's so awesome. And, and thank you for the work that you do. I mean, I, I will definitely make sure this month to go to a, to go to AMC theater, watch a movie just to see the PSA. Um, oh, but Gia, <laughs> absolutely. Gia, I know that there has been so much that's been going on. I was able to see a, a little bit uh, on the internet and on social media. Um, I, I would love to know a little bit from your side as well. Uh, what has your response been to the atrocities that we've been seeing? And, and uh, has there been some positive change that you've been able to witness? Yeah, thank you for that question. Can I just say, I am so glad to have Wanda doing what she does. Thank you. That is also uh, so big for us to see some of those positive changes, Michael, as you're talking about. Um, but yeah, so I think first, as as my as as a human, uh, the atrocities are awful, uh, and they're horrible to see and they're hard to see. And I'll be honest that I don't watch all of the videos to protect myself from the trauma. You know, I've had really hard conversations in the last couple of months about the rise to a level of you know influence 
that um, people have, including myself in my community and in the Asian community. Um, it is very white where I live in Minnesota, um, although we do have a really significant refugee population here. And so there are people who look like me and people who look like Michael and people who look like Mahek, you know, in the, in the Twin Cities. And so I, I think that's um, uh, really important that when people watch me on TV, they see someone that they can say, okay, that is a person of color that I can relate to in one way or another. I don't understand, you know, everything that, that uh, the Asian community is going through, but I understand some things. And then the, for the other parts, I wanna learn. But um, yeah, what someone had said to me recently about, you know, rising to this level of influence, someone said, you know, my, my dad had something horrible happen to him recently where, this was shortly after all the shootings in Atlanta, uh, the murders of those uh, six Asian women and two others. Um, and the day, I wanna say the, the Friday following that, um, my dad was dropping off my, my step, my, my step um, siblings' kids, so his grandkids at the bus stop and someone, drove by and yelled at him and said, go back to your country, you better leave, you better go, or you'll get killed. And my dad was so shocked and he wasn't sure who this woman was talking to. And he looked around and he said, are you talking to me? And she said, yes, I'm talking to you. You need to go back to your country or you'll be killed. And my dad didn't know what to do. And he called me and said, what should I do about this? This woman just said this to me and I feel and I think what I, what I was understanding him to feel was confused and hurt um, because he had been in this country for since the late 70s. Um, he had come to this country after fighting with the Americans during the secret war. And so he felt like this country is as much mine as anyone else's and why would someone tell me that? And so there was a lot of confusion and hurt there and I think uh, when I I was so irate about this that I posted it on my um, Twitter and, you know, 95% of the comments were super positive and supportive and couldn't believe this was happening. Uh, and there was that like little percentage who said, oh, it's interesting that she just happens to be an anchor, a news anchor, and this happens to her dad. And I... I I wanted to, 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 you know, scream at people and say, this is my life every day. Just because I've risen to a level of influence uh, does not mean that I, at the end of the day, am still not Asian or my dad is still not Asian, you know? And so um, these atrocities really hit home for me, I think, to answer your question, Michael, is that, you know, this is still my life every day. And, and when I see these, uh, horrible acts of violence against our Asian community. I think about my father and I think about um, my aunts and my uncles and my siblings and my mom and how this could be them. Gia, I'm so sorry to hear that this happened to your father. And uh, one thing that I am proud as being a vice chair of the California State University, that out of San Francisco State, Dr. Russell Jung, because of the lack of reporting of these incidents, he created with two other organizations, Stop AAPI Hate, which is the tracking center, which is tracking all of these incidents of 
And it's just a matter of, you know, if this happens to you, please report them because it's important for us to know the level of these Asian hate crimes incidents that are happening across the U.S. And he just released a report uh, a few days ago saying that from March of 2020 to March 31st of this year, that over 6,600 incidents have been reported. For me, with my dad, it was a lot of education about um, some of the different organizations like Stop AAPI Hate that are tracking uh, but it is so, so awful, and I've said this before, that we have to measure our existence in this way for people to care. But unfortunately, it's the only way that we have, if, when we think about wanting to create policy changes, right? We can show people the numbers and lawmakers the numbers and say, look, this is what's happening to us. And so, Wanda, I appreciate you mentioning uh, that and, and a way to report I know that, um, Wenda, you talked about how you are, I believe, a second, third generation American and how you have um, this connection to your culture, but you also are very much an American. And I think that something people don't realize is that being connected with your heritage, your background doesn't make you any less of someone who sees this country as their home and who deserves to be here. And so I think that a lot of that comes from the way that our stories are told. I know that Gia talked about her Hmong identity, but also how a lot of her identity has been shaped by other people's perception of her. And so that kind of ties back to our, our stories being told by other people. And so when you're working in production and in media, what is happening to change, to allow the AAPI community to take charge of the narrative and what needs to happen? That's such an important question, Heck, and so thank you so much for bringing that up. When I was growing up, you know, watching television, the only Asian person that I saw was the Calgon lady. My husband, some hotshot. And she actually was speaking disparagingly to her husband. Here's his ancient Chinese secret, new improved Calgon. So although I would be so happy when I would see this commercial, we need more Calgon, I would also cringe. Ancient Chinese secret, huh? And uh, even as a kid, I used to make my mother and my siblings stay in the movie theater to watch the movie credits, because if I saw a name that looked like it was Asian, which was extremely rare, we would cheer. And so the importance of representation is so important because otherwise we are invisible. We are not represented. And so, you know, starting in 1974, you can imagine the changes that I have seen over the decades. And it's one of the reasons why I co-founded CAPE, the Coalition of Asian Pacifics Entertainment, which was to um, empower those who are in the entertainment industry who happen to be AAPIs, but also to grow that next generation. And so what we are seeing now is a generation of writers, producers, directors, people in front of the camera and behind the camera telling their own stories. But even if it's not their own specific stories, there is representation of people of color on screen. And um, there was an incident that I had heard from a parent 
who had seen one of the videos that CAPE has produced called the I Am videos, where we would have celebrities talk about their personal stories of who they are. And it was shown at this uh, camp for children, specifically for children who are uh, Korean Americans, and many of whom are adoptees and their adoptive parents are not Asian. And these wonderful parents send the, their Korean American children to these camps to learn the Korean culture. And one of these parents told me the story where, where they were reduced to tears because their son had never seen any Asian male celebrities who talked about themselves. And for the first time in his life, he felt pride in being a Korean American, Asian American child in the United States. And so that's why I think it's so important that we see ourselves. If you don't see yourselves, you, you don't think you can become that. You don't think you can become a senator as with Senator Duckworth or Hirano, um, that you could become a vice president like Kamala Harris. If you can be uh, an Oscar nominee such as Stephen Yun, and it just goes on and on. What I also want to say is that we in the AAPI community must support our product. If there is a television show, a movie, a book, um, a, a a person running for office, we must support them. We have to support those so that you of the next generation can see themselves and see that there is a pathway that has been cleared. And also, I think it's incredibly important that for those who are following, who are standing on the shoulders of Gia, who are standing on the shoulders of, of me, that that next generation be aware of that and that they extend a helping hand to that next generation. Wow. I mean, so so much of what you're saying, um, everyone is saying, is resonating with me in, in a little bit of a different way. But I'll, I'll out myself a little bit and admit that when I was younger, because of the media, I was afraid of people who looked like me. I, I wasn't born in this country. I was born in Ethiopia and immigrated here when I was a young child. And my dad is from Ghana and my mother's from Zambia. So it was, it was almost like, I don't know how to describe it other than we didn't know much of the black community outside of the media. And so it, you know, growing up watching some shows, especially on TV where, you know, black people were criminals. They were, they were doing drugs. They were aggressive. And so, you know, I, I, I look back on me as, as a child and can remember seeing people who look like me and being somewhat afraid. So I, I just wanted to, to kind of bring up that point as kind of the importance of representation in media and the proper representation, not just there being, you know, a person of color on the screen, but there's a person of color on screen doing something incredible. Um, just a few days ago, I actually finished uh, a show on HBO. Uh, maybe some of you on the call have watched it. If not, then I'm alone and, and happy to sing its praises. But I just finished Warrior, um, season two, which was incredible. So the show Warrior, uh, is, is actually based in San Francisco, uh, I, I think, uh, late 1860s, 1870s, and really is about the story of immigration from China. That was, I mean, even though they were facts that I had known, like, yes, the Chinese came and worked on railroads and et cetera, et cetera. I had never seen it 
on the screen. I'd never seen it act out or played out or seen the racism and the way that it affected people or how people were forced to live in certain ways and segregated into Chinatown. And so I was watching it in my, I mean, even though I had all the information, just being able to sit there and witness it, I think completely changed the game. And I live in Berkeley now. So I'm like looking over and, and towards the direction of San Francisco thinking it's right there. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes that's, that's something that, that can, that can go uh, kind of over our heads. Um, so I guess moving forward in the conversation, I'm really curious what's next. What, what needs to happen now? What are things that folks should be thinking about? I know policy can't kind of came up a little bit. Gia brought it up. Uh, maybe what policy needs to be considered or what practices need to be changed? What is something that it's top of mind is something that needs to, to change in order to improve the conditions? Yeah, I think that's a really big question. As I think about that, I think about, you know, my conversation with Dr. Erica Lee, which in the Twin Cities, we're so fortunate to have her at the U of M. She is the historian of Asian America. And we were talking the other day and I asked her too, what do you think needs to change? And Michael, to your point about um, not really seeing or not really learning about the Asian American experience um, growing up and having to see and shape your ideas through movies and media, um, we talked about education and we talked about how that not only needs to be taught because to be honest, I I had an Asian, my first Asian American course in a college. And she said, we can't just be teaching this in college. We have to be teaching this K through 12. And she also said the conversations like this, right? And I agree, I agree with her is that you have to, you have to have these conversations with people in your family. You have to have conversations like this with work. Um, specifically to media and news media, um, I will say that there definitely needs to be a change when we look at, in our newsroom and we have uh, issues that come up. For example, when the Atlanta spa shootings happened, uh, people were quick to say in our newsroom, oh, you know, police said it's not race related or race motivated, so let's just skip that story today. Let's do this other story. And there were not enough people in the newsroom to, to speak up who are Asian, who said, this is my experience. This is my lived experience. And I know that police are saying this, but they also are not Asian. And so to have people in the newsroom to speak up and say, here, let me help you understand. And unfortunately, we don't want to be those people to have to explain our existence to others. But sometimes that helps move the conversation forward, right? And so um, just having a diverse newsroom, and I also don't mean that in just having people on air that look like me, because I think that that's maybe insidious and in that you just have optics that look like you are diverse. But really, when we get to the root of the problem in these uh, newsrooms, uh, when it comes to diversity, we need to hire people who are decision makers who uh, are news directors, who can make decisions about day-to-day -day coverage, who are news managers, who are GMs, general managers of news stations. Um, and we need, to, we need to start thinking about hiring decision makers and not just people on air who, uh, who, who may look like uh, the company news station is being proactive when it comes to diversity. And then I also think uh, specifically for my industry that there needs to be a better pipeline. There's a lot of mistrust with the media and not just in general, but in communities of color too. Because historically, 
they communities of colors color i don't think uh feel like they have been represented well by the media and there's not been those stories that uh show exactly how what that community is and uh, um, how they live and so i think that we need to also um, create a pipeline for uh, building trust with communities of color and create a pipeline for once we build trust, we can get people into the, the pipeline of uh, this is how, this is our company, for example, my company, and, and, and we, can, we can put you in this pipeline if you're interested in journalism and uh, kind of help you, guide you along the way. And that's really important for when uh, the companies are looking to hire someone to say, oh, we've had this person that we've known since their high school years and let's grab them because they've done amazing work for the last five, six years in our in our company's um, programs. And so those sorts of things I think are really important too. But uh, yeah, that's a really big question. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much, there's so much that can be done. I agree completely to what Gia was saying is that we need representation. We need representation across every avenue of industry, uh, starting with our our cabinet for the for the White House on down. And um, again, education is the key. And as Gia was saying, that yes, we need to have ethnic studies taught in K through twelve not only just in in universities and i'm i'm proud to say that with the csu we are starting in the fall a requirement that ethnic a ethnic studies course must be taken for graduation from the california state university but that's just a start and adding on to the conversation about ethnic studies policywise actually did an episode that i i got to be a part of with our state superintendent about ethnic studies being a part of K through 12 education and the importance of that. I think um, tying back to that conversation of being told to go back to our country or whatever, go back to where we came from, comes from a lack of realization that um, Asian American history, Black history is American history because there's been that presence there. And so it's, it's so important that we take this issue on an education level and really start teaching history as it happened so that we can prevent these things in the future. You know, I'm thinking about a, a little bit back to a conversation that we had, both with the conversation with Mahek and the superintendent, but also way back when, actually one of our first episodes uh, was with Isaac and Dr. Shirley Weber, who who at the time was pushing through a, a, a ballot measure um, in order for increased representation in higher education. And so, you know, part of what I'm thinking about is not only do we need to have the education in our degree programs in K through 12, but we also need to have, as we're discussing, the people who uh, who come from diverse backgrounds teaching the material, and not only that material, uh, not only that material that relates to their culture, but but a lot of different types of subjects. Uh, I I proudly went to San Diego State, and and the folks that can see me can see that there's a flag right behind me uh, of San Diego State. But unfortunately, I went through political science without a single black faculty member of political science. Um, and it wasn't until I went to UC Berkeley that I had a, a professor, actually the only black professor in the in the department uh, in, in public policy. And just thinking about how so many students are going through their entire K through 12 system, 
their entire four-year college degree and possibly graduate degree without ever being taught by a person of color and even without sometimes being taught by women. And so, you know, thinking about some of those uh, really inequities at, at the basis of it, um, but also the next generation uh, of young folks thinking about what we need to do in order to change the, the course of history. Because of the way that minority groups were represented in the media, you ended up being afraid of people who look like you. And I think like I went through the exact same thing when I was younger, where I was so I didn't I couldn't even say like you're brown to myself because I was always taught that it was such a like uncomfortable world. Now I'm older and I'm like, yeah, I, I am brown. I am Daisy. I am Indian. I can say those things, but I had to teach myself those things. I took a lot of pride in myself when I was younger for not being too Indian because the way that I saw Indian people in media was always as backwards or embarrassing. And I was like, oh, I can't be like that. I have to try hard not to. And so I, you know, purposely would say Indian names wrong. And, you know, and I'd be like, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Um, but you can't separate yourself from something that you are. And so I had to learn that. And I had to teach myself to, that something to be proud of. I, you know, started learning Hindi again. I started listening to music again and working on my pronunciation. So I don't do that anymore. And I make an effort to also, you know, teach my younger sister that and teach other people that too and help them feel comfortable being who they are um, because it's not something, you know, you can erase about yourself. But that's something that we should be able to see in our media and movies and TV shows. And I also think um, back to what Wenda was saying about representation, when you have people in the room who are coming from the backgrounds you're writing about, you see it in the stories. The quality is so much better. It's in the best interest of story making and storytelling for us to have people in the room who can tell these stories best. And then, of course, it just benefits society because it creates a better understanding of who we are as people. Yeah. Yeah, Mahek. I, I also um, really feel for you in the feeling like you're stuck between two worlds because uh, uh, growing up, too, I think that for me, it was more it was how long are you? How, how American are you? And I was always feeling stuck between those two worlds. But I also think it's important to say um, that for my industry too, it's important not just to get people of color in there, but it's also important to get people of color in there and not have them conform to the systems that we currently are in because that is not helpful. And so uh, like Mahek is saying, I think you get people of color into these newsrooms and and you, you say, yes, we want you to have your diverse opinions. We want you to come in with your background. We don't want you to conform. And that is the hard thing is that I think a lot of people end up conforming into these systems that um, ultimately don't show who they truly are, ultimately don't speak to their lived experiences either. And so we cannot have uh, people of color hired and expect them to divorce themselves from their same day to day experiences. So I was, I, I did a little bit of, of Googling um, during the conversation just to, just to see how bad it is in our, our U.S. Senate <laughs> uh, historically in terms of representation. Um, and it looks like there have only ever been eight Asian Americans to serve in the, the U.S. Senate, in the history of the United States. Um, knowing from past history and, and doing research, there's been 11 Black U.S. Senators, and this is in the history. And so we're looking at 19 people who have served in the U.S. Senate 
in the over what 300 history of the country and so when we think about even the laws that are being made uh when we think about uh who's making the decisions who decides what the budget looks like a lot of a lot of it is very much so done just about without perspective uh of people who look like us and and just thinking about that like brings a chill to my spine um it, both in a way that's like, okay, come on, we, we could do a lot better than that. But also that there's, there's an opportunity for growth, that we have that growth and that, that there's a future generation coming up um, that hopefully we'll be able to change some of these numbers. And so our, our favorite closing question here on Policy Wise is uh, we've been having such a wonderful conversation. We want to make sure to be respectful, respectful of your time. Um, is what would you tell young people and policy professionals who are listening into this conversation and thinking about these topics play out in their day-to-day lives? What is the call to action? What should they do? For me, it is to speak yourself, to be the best you. You know, we're all different. Of course, you know, we all can't be Gia's. You know, you can't be um, Kamala Harris. But I believe that God has given us gifts and that we need to use our gifts to the best of our ability. And that whatever avenue you take in your life, that you make a difference, that you leave this world in a better place. So whatever that is, you find your voice, you speak yourself, you hold your fellow brothers and sisters together, and that you Learn from the previous generation. You know your history. You, again, you stand on the shoulders of those who have preceded you, but you also help that next generation. You have a responsibility, particularly as an American, to be a great citizen. Please be a great citizen. I would agree with Wanda there. And I think um, being human and seeing others as human, and that is a really tough thing because of the country that we live in and the systems that are built around us and and the systems that we uh, get involved in, um, that people can be different and they can have different opinions and also what we need to get back to first is that they're human. And I think to Wanda's point also about being a good citizen, and part of that to me is when Michael talks about the US Senate and the diversity when it comes to Asian people in the US Senate, I think that comes down to being knowledgeable about what is happening in your own city too, and looking at your city council and looking at those local races that really matter, that can potentially, um, put someone on a trajectory to be a U.S. Senate, but you have to care about those things too. And you have to, you have to do the research and educate yourself about who's running and what they stand for. And is that something that you, or someone that you would want to represent you? Um, Because as Wanda said earlier, it is so important to support, you know, uh, these Asian uh, led movies or Asian backed movies or Asian, uh, my, anchors or reporters or and also that means your local races as well because that determines policies and so i think that is also really important and then the other thing i would say 
is to know not just the history of other groups, but to also know your own history. And I say that because a lot of the times I run into uh, white people who say, oh yeah, I'm just white, just a regular old white person. And I always say, but you were something before you came to the, your family was something before they came here, right? Um, unless you were indigenous. But I always say, but your family was something before you came here. And so when I think about, for example, the Irish who left because of famine and people were dying in their families and there was no food and they came here and there were horrible uh, acts that happened uh, on their uh, ships here. I think when you are when you become so far removed from your own history, you don't feel what other groups are feeling. So instead, maybe you just feel maybe you just feel sorry for them or you feel, you know, it's, it's more like we're moving from, we're trying to figure out how to move from sympathy to empathy and then action. And so when you can feel and understand and know that, oh, three generations ago, four generations ago, this is what my grandmother had to go through. This is what my, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather had to go through. And you feel those within yourself you can then better understand and relate to other people of color who say, these are my experiences every day. You know, these, these were my parents' experiences. And when you, when you talk to a person of color, there's, there's much more understanding there. So I would also say to people who don't know their own family history, really dig into that. And that might open, open some eyes a little bit more. Exactly. I think the ideal would be an environment where people of color feel like they can say things and be heard. And so when articles are written in the future about different culture, people are, you know, they keep in mind what was said and they're able to be cautious of the way they talk. Because I think that a lot of things we see, um, a lot of issues and insensitive articles often come down to rhetoric and the way that we talk about different people. Um, and that to me is the most obvious way to tell that a person of color's opinions weren't being considered or that person's background who the article is about wasn't being taken seriously. Um, and so I hope that in the future we're able to listen and then our work is able to reflect that. Heck, Michael, thank you. Wanda, I'm so glad that you were on this podcast with me. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, it's been an honor. <laughs> and privilege for me to be on this program with all of you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gia and Wenda, for your words and for coming here today and speaking with us. Um, uh, in my 17 years of existence, I guess, of some of the most influential moments, the ones that really made me want to speak and share my opinions came from listening to other people and realizing I could do that too. And so um, that's kind of where I want to leave us off today. I hope that everyone who's listening feels encouraged to go to learn their history or to start um, working towards doing good and doing something they care about. Um, that is all for today. Thanks for joining us on another episode of PolicyWise. We are your hosts, Michael. And Mahek Kondru. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. And California Forward leads a statewide movement, bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure that the economy works for everyone. This episode was produced by Tim Haydock and Jarrett Ramones, edited by Jarrett Ramones, and social media graphics were created by Abby Pugh.
music was sourced from artlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org. And be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion here on PolicyWise.